If you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word uh, to Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the um, chairs in front of you or underneath you, um, and it's page 571 in those Bibles that are in the pews, but otherwise, uh, Isaiah chapter 6. We'll be reading the first seven verses of Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips." Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. The glass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, and we've read your word, and we seek to to understand it, to know it, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would make this word run swiftly and speedily, into our hearts and our minds. Lord, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear. Lord, work this and and work in me that what I say would be clear and guided and directed by you. Fill me with your spirit this morning. We pray this for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. Well, this year on the June 13th broadcast of Jeopardy, there was a $200 puzzle question. They read this, and you can see it up there. Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father, which art in heaven, this be your name. And shockingly, you did not see thumbs ablaze going like this, trying to ring in as fast as possible. You saw three people stand there completely in dumbfounded silence. No one rang in. The buzzer went, and the host finally had to say, What is Hallowed? It was honestly a bit shocking, but then again, maybe it wasn't. Not only do people know less and less of what Scripture says, or as someone on Twitter pointed out, they don't know the 1982 Iron Maiden song, Hallowed Be Thy Name. <laughs> but also, the whole term Hallowed has practically fallen by the wayside. Very few people realize it means holy. Now, this morning, as we continue in our series, Knowing God, It's using the Westminster Shorter Catechism question four as a guide. Again, that question is, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal. I'm not hearing anybody. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Okay, at least got some noise, so that's good. So now, today, we turn to God as holy. Now, that term has really two ideas behind it. The first, and and the one that I think we often neglect, 
refers to God's separateness, his, his otherness. This is the truth that God is different from everything else. God is transcendent. And then the second is what I think we most often consider, and it refers to his purity, his unspotted character, his perfection in righteousness. And in looking at these, it is important to see that distinction in Scripture, because there are places where we are explicitly, as his people, commanded to be holy, for I am holy. Now, that doesn't work with the primary meaning. Meaning, you know, so, so we have to be careful to distinguish between these two aspects of God's holiness. So there is both an incommunicable and a communicable facet to the, to the holiness of God. Incommunicable being that it cannot be imparted to us. We, we cannot be called to imitate it. We cannot possess or imitate God's transcendent and divine nature in that primary meaning where he's separate and other from us. We do not become God. However, we are to become more and more like God in our purity, in our righteousness. This facet of his holiness is communicable. You would think of like a communicable disease, but if, if, we all, if holiness was communicated, it would not be a pandemic. It would be a wonderful thing, okay? It, it would be great if that happened. Now, these are the, the two ideas we're going to explore this morning, and, and my hope simply is this, that not only will we know a little bit more of what God's holiness is and what it means, but as always... My desire is why, you know, how does this fuel our devotion? Why is this so important and beneficial that we know the implications of God's holiness in our lives? So we affirm, because Scripture rightly affirms it and clearly teaches us, that God is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably holy. Okay, he is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably holy. He cannot be anything but holy. The Hebrew and Greek roots of, of the word that's, that's used to translate as holy express the same basic idea of otherness or separateness. This is the primary arena of God's holiness that, that refers to his transcendence over the creature. This, again, as I said, is incommunicable. Okay? This is intrinsic to who God is. There is an unapproachableness to God in that sense. Now, this is not because he's a jerk or rude or anything along those lines, but because of how glorious and splendid he is. Scripture even calls us to, to worship God in the splendor of his holiness, to know, to understand that. There is a, there's to be a reverence when we come to God in worship. It's not all buddy-buddy. It's not all, you know, just me and Jesus got a good thing going and all friendly and all that kind of stuff. Now, there is a friendliness. There is an imminence. But we have to understand there is a transcendence. God is different. He is wholly different than us. You know, even though in Christ we are children of God, there is still a great otherness between humanity and God our Father. So let's look at the, the, the first three verses in Isaiah 6 this morning. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, this is an amazing scene. Isaiah is given the privilege of seeing the Lord, at least to a degree. See, the earthly king had died. 
but the throne of God was not vacant. And there were these, these seraphim, these angels around the throne. In the New Testament, the Apostle John actually refers as well to this throne room, a very similar scene, Revelation 4. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So what you see very clearly, you see the, the, the seraphim there, but you see this repeated refrain, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Robert Raymond wrote this. He said, now when Isaiah saw this awesome scene and heard these four creatures singing, he was immediately struck with his moral impurity. But what is often overlooked is that the seraphs are sinless creatures, And yet in the presence of God, the Son, they feel it necessary continually to cover themselves all over by their wings. Clearly for them, his holiness was his separateness from them due to his transcendence over against their creatureliness. Even these these seraphs, these sinless creatures, these, these angels are reverent before the Lord. They know his holiness. They are in awe of God. They worship him, and they repeat holy three times. Now, now listen, they're not a, a class of angels that just stutters a lot, okay? They actually are saying holy, holy, holy for emphasis. It was purposeful. This is how the Hebrews displayed intensity. They, they, you know, it's, if you get a text message from somebody and it's all caps, you know that they're screaming at you, okay? This is, this is a way of emphasis for the Hebrews, R.C. Sproul gave a bit of a, a humorous illustration of this. He referred to, to Genesis 14.10, and in that passage, uh, you have the, the kings of Sodom and others, and, and some people fall into what is translated in the ESV as bitumen pits. Now, if you look at other translations, it, it'll say a tar pit or this, because the reality is, is the, the, the original says pit pits. Okay, it just says pit pits. And Sproul writes this, he says, The Jew was saying that there are pits and there are pits. Some pits are pittier than other pits. These pits, the pit pits, were the pittiest pits of all. It's one thing to fall into a pit, but if you fall into a pit pit, you're in deep trouble. Okay, so there's an emphasis to it. So when, if there's pit pits out there, or if there's a whole hole, avoid it. Like some of these potholes are whole holes, okay, out there. So we have to understand that it's emphasis. It was a way of communicating. This was really bad. Now, in relation to holy being repeated three times, it's obviously not emphasizing that it's bad, but how superlative it is, how, how massive, how completely and utterly holy God is. This is the only attribute of God that is ever repeated three times. Never do you hear love, 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 unless you listen to the Beatles, or, um, you know, grace, grace, grace. As, As great as those things are, those attributes of God are, you only hear holy, holy, holy. Folks, we cannot miss how significant that is. This communicates the massive degree to which God is separate from his creation. But this idea is not communicated only in Isaiah 6. Let's look uh, 
Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Stephen Charnock, in his great work, The uh, Existence and Attributes of God, uses this verse to, to write his whole 150-page chapter on God's holiness. And this verse falls in the Song of Moses, which comes on the heels of the great deliverance of Israel from Egypt, of crossing through the Red Sea. And the implied answer of that question is a resounding, no one. No one is like our God. There's none like the Lord, only Yahweh, only the Lord Almighty, only the covenant-keeping God of Israel is majestic in holiness. This holiness is integral to what makes God lovely. I don't know if we think about holiness and loveliness the same or together, but holiness makes God lovely. Charnock wrote this, the holiness of God is his glory as his grace is his riches. Holiness is his crown and his mercy is his treasure. This is the blessedness and nobleness of his nature. It renders him glorious in himself and glorious to his creatures that understand anything of this lovely perfection. We could also turn, though, to 1 Samuel 2, 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Further, Revelation 15, 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. But even in all of God's otherness, the separateness, this this. Um, aspect of his holiness, there is actually amazing condescension and, and a holy graciousness to him. Isaiah 57, 15, listen to this, the, the, the pairing of these things. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Okay, it sets it up that way, right? So this is, this is the one who's separate and other. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Folks, how amazing is that? That the one who is high and lifted up dwells with the one who is humble and contrite. The one who dwells in the highest and holiest of places also dwells with the holy, or with with the humble and the lowly to revive the spirit And I think this just further shows the beauty of his holiness. It's not cold. It's not sterile. It's wonderful. It's delightful. Now, though I think this holiness in some ways is is impossible to comprehend, it is strikingly beautiful. But when Isaiah did comprehend it to, to at least some degree, there was a response that we see from Isaiah Look back at at chapter 6 of Isaiah, and let's start with verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Folks, it was not merely the house that shook, but it was Isaiah himself. And he cried out, woe is me. That's that's not a phrase we use all that often anymore. But he, he actually pronounced judgment upon himself. He saw how utterly different the Holy Lord was from him. 
He said he was lost, as, or as in some other translations, it would say that he's undone or ruined. And I always will remember R.C. Sproul speaking about this and reminding his hearers that Isaiah was a man of God. Um, he was, in many ways, a paragon of virtue. He was a, a, what we would have called a holy man, a, a righteous man in so many ways. Yet, when he caught this, this glimpse of the majestic holiness of the Lord, immediately he realized that, that, that one of the ways God was so different from him was in God's absolute moral purity and righteousness. And he came apart at the seams. That's what it means. He, 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 he was disintegrated in many ways. He saw the ultimate standard of holiness, of purity, of beauty, of perfection, and he was ruined. So folks, this leads us to the second aspect of holiness, God's moral purity. With regard to his character, his actions, his words, his thoughts, there is no speck of evil, no stain. God has a holy and perfect aversion to all that is evil. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that in yourself? Not, not even having the slightest hint of an evil desire or an impure thought or motive or anything unholy and inclination about you? It's unimaginable at this point. I, I wish it weren't so unimaginable, and, and perhaps it will diminish in that regard over time. I, I believe it will, but even as we mature in faith, even as we go closer to the Lord and, and, and we, the, the light exposes more of our darkness, it actually, it actually humbles us more because we realize how sinful we are in relation to a holy God. We'll be growing more and more in Christ-likeness, but we'll also know more and more of who we are in light of God. Now, I want us to see a few Scripture passages that point to this aspect of God's holiness. Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Or Habakkuk 1.13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And then we could turn to 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is speaking of moral darkness, of, of walking in the way of evil. There's none of that in God. He righteously abhors all evil. Charnock wrote this of the seriousness of this truth, of the seriousness of, of why it matters so much that we have a holy God. He wrote, the notion of a God cannot be entertained without separating from him whatsoever is impure and bespotting, both in his essence and actions. If we conceive him destitute of this excellent perfection and imagine him possessed with the least contagion of evil, we make him but an infinite monster and sully all those perfections we ascribed to him before. We rather own him a devil than a God. It is a contradiction to be God and to be darkness or to have one mote of darkness mixed with his light, it is a less injury to him to deny his being than to deny the purity of it. The one makes him no God, the other a deformed, unlovely, and detestable God. God's holiness matters. 
And so consider this, consider what we've just talked about, and it's this demeanor, this orientation uh, of holiness, that's what we're called to imitate. This is the communicable aspect of the holiness of God. Leviticus 19, 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You could look at Matthew 5. Jesus says much the same thing. You shall be perfect for, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I read in the prayer of 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. See, because God is holy, those who are his are to be holy as well. We are to be different. We are to be set apart from the world. That's the call for believers. It's holiness. But when we consider God's holiness, though, when we consider that call, too, how, how are we to attain to holiness? We know we're not holy. We come into his presence and, and we understand, that, whoa, there's a, there's a massive difference here. Let's see what happened with Isaiah when he saw himself in the light of a holy God and saw his own moral impurity. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Folks, this is the grace of God. This is the means of salvation, the fire and the altar. A seraph flew with a burning coal that he had taken from the altar where God's holiness had accepted and was fully satisfied by the death of a sacrifice, a substitution. The coal pictures atonement and satisfaction, forgiveness, cleansing. Isaiah's sin was covered. It was atoned for. And we cannot miss how this so beautifully points to the work of Christ, to his sacrificial substitution on our behalf. See, Isaiah repented and he was cleansed and forgiven. It wasn't a perfunctory from him, oh, I'm sorry. He was undone by his sin. He was undone by his unholiness. And that's what we need. To be mourning over our lack of holiness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our, we, we need to mourn over our lack of conformity to the Lord. And, and there may well be, and there probably should, there probably should be some discomfort when we come face to face with our sin. There should. But confession or repentance is, is honestly, that's a very small price to pay to receive cleansing from our holy God. Sproul wrote this, he said, a second of burning flesh on the lips brought a healing that would extend to eternity. In a moment, the disintegrated prophet was whole again. A moment compared to eternity. Even an extended period of time of mourning and seeing our sin does not compare with eternity of wholeness. Our wholeness is found in the holiness and grace of God. But listen, I think we really struggle to see our sin as it truly is. 
I really think we do. Because A.W. Tozer, and he wrote this back, I think, in the 60s. He says, we have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as the natural and expected thing. Let me just read that again, because I think this is profound. We have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as the natural and expected thing. How rampant this is in our own hearts. We've become too accustomed and desensitized to the unholy. We accept it. We shrug it off. We don't seem to care that much about it. Listen, the only way we will stop being comfortable with unholiness is by fixing our eyes on the holy God and seeing what it took for him to save us from our sin, to to, to see in, in, in comparison what our sin is like. We do that. We see the holy God and we cannot take our sin lightly. We cannot take our lack of conformity to Christ lightly. We cannot take our unholiness lightly our deviation from his ways, our turning from him. Listen, in in thinking about the seriousness of this, Charnock again wrote this. He said, Not all the vials of judgments that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world, nor the flaming furnace of a sinner's conscience, nor the irreversible sentence pronounced against the rebellious devils, nor the, the groans of the damned creatures give such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon his Son. Never did divine holiness appear more beautiful and lovely than at the time our Savior's countenance was most marred in the midst of his dying groans. Justice indeed gave the stroke, but holiness ordered it. In this his purity did sparkle, and his irreversible justice manifested that all those that commit sin are worthy of death. This was the perfect index of his holiness and truth. So saying, not... not, You could pour everything out on the wicked that they deserve, and it doesn't even come close to comparing to to showing the wickedness of sin as what God did to Christ. To show his abhorrence for sin and the unholy. Sin and, and, folks, God is wholly opposed to sin. And I think this shows just how serious we, we are to take holiness, how serious we are to understand this, and, and how much we ought to stand in awe and worship our holy God. So then, briefly, how, how do we respond? Well, I think one thing that this points us to is, and it urges us on to grow to know God more, to know more of who he is, to know his character. Knowing him makes a difference. You can't respond to something you don't know. You can't grow in conformity to something you don't know. Knowing his character, that he's holy and perfectly abhors all sin and evil, keeping that before us, that that ought to direct our paths a bit more. But I also want to dig into a bit more in regard to our call to holiness. First, and and I've alluded to this already, but I want to be clear, we can only be holy because of the work of Christ. That is our only shot at holiness. The cross was the manifestation of God's holiness. It was a demonstration of his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we used it earlier in the service. For our sake, 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's where we're declared holy, is in our our repentance and confession in Christ. It is by grace through faith in him alone. But then once we are justified by Christ, that, that, that the term means to, to be declared righteous, once we have been declared righteous before the Father through him, what happens? R.C. Sproul again wrote, he said, when we are grafted into Christ, so when we, when we come to Christ, we are renewed inwardly by the Holy Spirit. Don't you even just, now, doesn't that name just stick out a little bit more? We are renewed inwardly by the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is called holy in part because his primary task in the Trinitarian work of redemption is to apply the work of Christ to us. He is the one who regenerates us and the one who works for our sanctification. Our sanctification is is our growing more in Christ-likeness. The Holy Spirit works in us and through us to bring us into conformity with the image of Christ that we might fulfill the mandate for holiness that God has has imposed upon us. So just know this. So God holy and, 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 and perfectly hates sin. He calls us to be holy, but he also provides for us the Holy Spirit to be at work in, among, and with us to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. One thing I think that should do is embolden our prayers. We know that God desires that holiness. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Let us pray that he would be working that in us more. God, the all-powerful God, the, 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 the perfectly holy God, has provided for us of himself in order to work holiness in his children. And he, listen, he hates the sin in you worse than you do. With a greater, and, and, and he, he does it with a perfect hatred. He despises our sin and our unholiness. That's a comfort because he will work to root it out in his children. He will work to root it out. Now remember that this high and holy God dwells with the broken and contrite. The ones who see their sin, who don't pretend, who don't put on masks and, 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 and walk about thinking that they're something that they're not. It, it's those who know and are humbled by their sin. But he does call us to strive after holiness, Hebrews 12, 14. To strive after holiness. And that has to actually be holiness, okay? I know that sounds obvious, but it's not morality. It's not um, conformity to certain community standards necessarily. It's not sacrifice or structure or ritual, but it's holiness. Those things are quite often on the outside, and the inside of the cup can be nasty. Holiness deals with the heart with the depths of the person. We're we're to strive after holiness in everything, not just in how we look, but in our whole lives. And Charles Spurgeon wrote of this morality and holiness, but, but, but I think it can apply to all those aspects in which we quite often sometimes try to fake holiness. And he wrote this. He wrote, Morality is a sweet, fair corpse, well washed and robed, and even embalmed with spices. But holiness is the living man, as fair and as lovely as the other, but having life. Morality lies there, soon to be food for corruption and worms. Holiness waits 
and pants with heavenly aspirations, prepared to mount and dwell in immortality beyond the stars. These twain are of opposite nature. The one belongs to this world. The other belongs to that world beyond the skies. It is not said in heaven, moral, moral, moral art thou, O God. But holy, holy, holy art thou. You note the difference between the two words at once. And Spurgeon writes this, the one, how icy cold. The other, oh, how animated. Such is mere morality and such is holiness. The Lord calls us to strive after holiness. And it'll make a difference. God calls us to that. So, folks, let us simply delight in the sweetness and beauty of our holy God. Let us pray that his Holy Spirit will be at work in us as we strive after holiness, as we pursue that holiness of conformity to his image. We serve a great and holy God. Let's pray. Father, holy God, Lord, give us a greater awe of you. a clearer picture of who you are, that it would be in in some ways like a mirror reflecting back to us where we lack that conformity and that we would be humbled and go to you for healing and growth and change. Lord, we don't want to just be somewhat this. Lord, we want to be moved more and more into conformity with your holiness. Thank you that you have provided for us. And we pray that you would be at work. Again, Lord, for your glory and for our good and our joy. In Christ's name, amen.